Hello, listeners. Yamina here. Welcome to the Dr. GPCR podcast. We are taking a break this month. While we do so, we invite you to revisit our previous episodes. We start this throwback month with episode eight of the Dr. GPCR podcast and our guest, Dr. Graciela Pinero. Graciela was our first female scientist guest on the podcast. I'm so grateful to her for joining me and chatting with me. I had recorded this episode in my car in May 2020 while parked in front of a Wi-Fi source. I love talking to Graciela as she walked us through her career, her struggles with depression, and how she overcame these. I recently met up with her at the Great Lakes GPCR retreat, and I hope to have her on soon again to talk with her about the new project she and her team have been working on. Before we revisit this throwback episode, we're excited to share that the Dr. GPCR Ecosystem 2.0 platform is now open. Although we plan on opening the ecosystem slowly to resolve any kinks as soon as possible, you can visit us at ecosystem.drgpcr.com and explore the new site. Access is restricted to members of the GPCR field. So when you sign up, please make sure that you indicate any information that you can to show that you're part of the field as approval will be based on the involvement in the field. Once you've signed up and approved, you'll be able to enter the ecosystem. You will also have the option to select a plan and get access to all things Dr. GPCR, including the full access to the upcoming Dr. GPCR Summit in October, access to the new podcast episodes before they even get released to the general public, our new discussion groups and forums, our job board, our learning center, where you'll be able to take or create a course uh, and share with your colleagues. And you can also discover GPCR companies and much more. Take advantage of everything that the new Dr. GPCR ecosystem and the GPCR dedicated online playground has to offer today. Visit us at ecosystem.drgpcr.com. This is the only place where GPCR scientists, trainees, and GPCR organizations can thrive and where it's only about science and GPCRs. Think ResearchGate meets LinkedIn meets Amazon. So don't forget to join us, ecosystem.drgpcr.com to start your GPCR journey today. Please also make sure that you mark your calendar for the third edition of the Dr. GPCR Summit. This year, the summit will be held between October 10th and 16th. Stay tuned as we are working on this year's program. Visit drgpcr.com to find out more about all our activities. And now, let's hear Graciela. So hello, everybody. Today, I have with me Dr. Graciela Pinero from the University of Montreal. Hi, Graciela. Hello. Hello to everyone. Thank you Hi. for having me in the program. And yeah, let's do this. Thank you so much for being here today. So uh, while I was doing some research, um, I realized that you were a professor at the Department of Physiology and... Mm, no, at the Department of Pharmacology and Physiology of University of Montreal. That is correct. Pharmacology, but then they fused together. All right. For, for some reason, I was always sure that you were a professor at the, at the University of Montreal, but in the Department of Biochemistry for some reason. Uh, no, I did my postdoc with Michel Bouvier, who is in the Department of Biochemistry, but I have always been a pharmacologist. Um, like, I, I have a career in pharmacology from the very beginning. Uh, I am MD by, you know, by choice. I started, uh, I, I did my career as an MD in Uruguay. But I always knew that I wanted, when I started as an MD, I, I started with basic sciences and I was really, really interested in that. The problem is I could never change into research because in Uruguay at the time I was uh, learning and doing my, my degree, there was no faculty of sciences. So the only way we could do research was through trying to get doing some research in medicine. So that is the first time I had a contact with a research question was in pharmacology at the Department of Pharmacology. A professor was looking for help in trying to understand how benzodiazepines and alcohol would change the sleep architecture. So that was my first question. And then I stayed working with him, not with patients, but with rats. 
And the question was about serotonin and the, the role of serotonin in, uh, again, sleep architecture. And there, it, the first time that GPCRs appeared in my lab, you know, like the 5-HT1A receptor, we were looking at agonists for that receptor and presynaptic and postsynaptic receptor. There was uh, a, a big school in Latin America that came from uh, Solomon Langer and the adrenergic receptors and pre and postsynaptic activities. And then, you know, it, it, we followed that big school. And uh, then, you know, I started reading papers on serotonin and fell on papers from someone in Canada who was quite well known for serotonin and depression and the, the mechanism of action of antidepressants, whom his name is, uh, he, he's deceased now, but he was Claude de Montigny at the Department of Pharmacology at McGill. So one day I wrote to him and I said, do you want to get give me a try and I was supposed to come to Canada for two years and I've been here ever since. I did my PhD at McGill Department of Pharmacology and when I finished there I was supposed to go on a postdoctoral fellowship again following serotonin receptors uh, with uh, Brian Roth. So um, I wrote a grant, a Fogarty NIH grant to go to his lab and we got a very high uh, placing in the competition. We were both of us very happy about that. And then I got diagnosed with depression after studying depression for so long. <laughs> I got diagnosed with a major depression and it really was a big change in my life. Um, we, uh, my husband and I decided to stay in Canada. I could not follow uh, my postdoctoral fellowship with Brian, which was, you know, it was a, a door that closed, but then an, another one that opened because I went to Michelle's lab here in Montreal. Uh, um, I needed to stay in Montreal for, for health reasons. And I was very, very happy still. You know, I, have, uh, I had a wonderful time there. And there is where my GPCR career, I think, started. Mm, Michelle's lab was, I think, uh, for me, was not so much the GPCR world, but, you know, it was the freedom that I had in that lab in order to explore my own questions about GPCRs. So when I got there, I went to Michelle's lab because he had a project on uh, serotonin, 5-HT2 receptors. But by the time I got to the lab, the project had already been finished. So I was thrust into opioids. And um, well, I started with a project in opioids that was trying to get binding on detergent uh, solubilized receptors, which I hated profoundly. <laughs> and I, I had- It is a narcissist. To, to do I, I don't know. It didn't come to me as an art. It came to me as a torture. And I was not very good at doing anything of that project. But, you know, in order to deal with anxiety, I was trying to do something else in parallel. And that parallel thing became my real project then. And which was all to do with, you know, like inverse agonism, uh, protein signaling, all in the delta opiate receptor. And uh, also we, we learned a lot at that time. Like the idea is that we were seeing things very strange that an agonist will turn into an inverse agonist and vice versa. And at the beginning, we, we were thinking that these were artifacts. So at that time when you were in Michelle's lab and working on the opioid receptors, what was the status of the research? What was known about these receptors? So, uh, of course, they had all been cloned in the 90s. And, you know, we uh, like inverse agonism was first described for the Delta opioid receptor. It was there. It was uh, I think Tommaso Costa, who, who published the first paper on that. And then uh, there was the beta-2 adrenergic receptor that was published by Michelle and Dr. Uh, Lefkowitz lab. And so I was 
into the inverse agonism. But by looking at inverse agonists, we found that some drugs were either agonist or inverse agonist, depending on the level of activity of your, of your system. And this is what, at that point, was being exactly described theoretically by Dr. Kenekin as protein agonists. And that is, was like the first hint that there were multiple active conformations of the GPCRs. And like this, I was really, really interested in the theoretics of this. I, uh, it, the, there were papers coming out in trends in pharmacological sciences by uh, Dr. Kenakin, which at the beginning, I am an MD by, by training. So, you know, it, it took me years, weeks to understand the profound things that I was reading for the first time. And it seemed to me incredible, you know, like to be able sort of to have models that could quantify and allow you to predict. And why, for, for my project, that was essential because we didn't know what it was, what was happening. And the only idea to be able to measure and predict something will transform your artifact into a real response. So that is why uh, I got so into the, in order to salvage my project, let's say. And this has been uh, a major interest in my life, you know, like uh, in my career, in, in my scientific uh, life. I have always been, from that point on, interested in multiple active conformations, measuring drug effects, the, uh, the models that we can use for uh, measuring drugs. And, you know, my, finally my PhD ended with this sort of landmark paper on the beta-2 adrenergic receptor where, uh, you know, it was a group effort. And I was not doing the experiments. I was really sort of discussing with Michel the theoretics. And he was very nice uh, to let me sort of have a very, you know, like uh, uh, supervising author moment in that paper. And he gave me the authorship also. It was the PNAS paper, which is a landmark, uh, like agonism and inverse agonism of the beta-2 adrenergy. And with that, I went to have my own lab back to the opiate receptor. And uh, we have been working on that ever since. Um, the question of interest is, what is it that makes drugs do what they do? We want to know essentially drug diversity. And in this diversity, how can we sort of rationalize drug effects in order to get analgesics that will produce analgesia with less side effects? Like uh, the mainstream has been uh, delta opioid agonists that will not produce tolerance. There has been like a lot of movement in that sense and the idea about signaling and trafficking. Like uh, there, there has been all this idea that internalization might be a predictor of tolerance. We did not go in that sense. We think that uh, the predictor is not internalization per se but what happens to the receptor once it has been internalized. So my lab has been very interested in recycling, and we have shown that different patterns of recycling determine either acute or chronic tolerance. The drugs that recycle or that allow receptor recycling are the ones that uh, produce less tolerance, whether it is acute or chronic. And that is one of the big uh, messages that I think we have been able to put out there. The delta opiate receptor has always been considered as a non-recycling receptor, uh, which is again uh, a mountain that we had to um, go up, but we found that the receptor is sent to the lysosomes, as it has been said, but it recycles from the lysosomes. So that was uh, really sort of, you know, you asked somewhere, you asked me when I had an aha moment. That is <laughs> you know, like it recycles. It recycles from the place that we think they are being degraded, but they recycle. Was it the first example of, of a GBCR recycling from the lysosome? That I, that I know of, yes. Like we based, um, um, yeah, that I know of, 
it was the first one, you know, but maybe there was something that escaped my, my mind. But as I say, I, uh, as I said to you at the beginning, I am not that interested in the first or the biggest or the, I am really interested that it allowed us to answer a question that was essential to our research. Yeah. So that, that was um, very interesting for us. It was a cellular and molecular life sciences paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the whole idea is to understand GPCR biology and, for example, the Delta opiate biology as well, in order to be able to target them and, and have analgesics, which, which do what they need to do without creating that dependency. Yeah, I think one, uh, I, I would like to say something before we leave the, the recycling world. I would really like to thank Mark Bonsastro because he gave me the tools to do that project for a long time and he, he has been an inspiration for that. So, you know, like Mark, uh, really, his papers are really something that I have looked at uh, for, you know, for guidance, I, I really liked his work and that, you know, he is the one saying that they do not recycle and we have discussed this and I, 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 you know, I think we came to a nice conclusion that yes, they do recycle from the place where they are degraded. So that I would like to say. And with respect to um, uh, the rationality of opioid analgesics, then we moved a little bit from the opioid to the new because, you know, of all the possibilities about uh, bias that were sort of coming across. So when every, uh, we started a project uh, with opioid, uh, new opioid receptor bias between beta-restin and um, um, activation, mostly G-protein activation. And we looked at a lot of uh, compounds, known standard compounds and new compounds from Pfizer company. We looked uh, at a number of uh, G-proteins versus beta-restin recruitment, beta-restin 1, beta-restin 2 in presence of different GRKs. And eventually, like this was an inverse aha moment because we came to the terrible conclusion that we had no bias, you know. Like uh, we looked at about 25 compounds and we had a very nice sort of dichotomy where we had beta resting not being recruited and a big sort of uh, signal for uh, G-alpha or for KIR or for cyclic AMP, but those were all partial agonists. Like we never saw a real evidence of bias. We saw evidence of partial agonism. And that is what our uh, nature communications paper is about. We tried to look for bias and classify our drugs, uh, uh, new and standard drugs according to a bias signature, but there was no bias signature. What we could do was classify our drugs according to the relative efficacies, and from those relative efficacies, we were able to predict uh, uh, secondary effects in the clinic. But there uh, were recent reports that uh, that came out recently that said that having a, a bias in the context of the of the opioid receptors was not necessarily the answer to finding. The, the perfect analgesic. So at some point there were all these papers coming out that said, well, you have, you need beta restin, I think if I remember correctly, but you don't need G protein or vice versa. But recently it has been shown that it's not that clear. Uh, what's, what is the status of the research on that? So from like, you know, at the time that our paper came out, this was exactly what was uh, discussed, appeared in the discussion. We do not seem to have biased drugs. We seem to have partial agonists that will produce a side effect like respiratory depression or constipation that is proportional to the efficacy to do to activate the receptor. And like this is again what the new papers that came out 
was showing exactly like, you know, like it is a question of partial agonism. The drugs that produce uh, more recruitment of beta restin are the most effective. They produce beta restin recruitment and side effects. The ones that are partial agonists, they produce less recruitment of beta restin and less side effects because they are partial agonists. Then what happened is a very sort of landmark uh, or sobering moment for the bias movement in uh, opioids. It was shown that, you know, all the idea of the benefits of avoiding beta restin recruitment to avoid side effects is based on the idea that if you knock out beta restin in mice, you will have less respiratory depression and less constipation. Now there was a new paper uh, that came out from groups in Australia, in uh, Germany, and in UK that were clearly showing that in another model of knockout mice, uh, there is no better resting, but the uh, respiratory depression is still there. So, you know, like uh, it, it is a sobering moment. We have, obviously we have to come back to the drawing board and acknowledge that there is nothing as simple as black and white, beta resting and G protein. So that is something that we need to go back and try to start thinking again because it is uh, it is something that we've learned the hard way, you know, like but that I think should not discourage the people from thinking about bias. Bias is something that is a pharmacological uh, um, phenomenon. It is of interest and which is its basis that it is the multiplicity of active conformation. That is what I think we should be sort of be concentrating on and trying to concentrate on activating some um, forms uh, or conformations of the receptor and not others. The the bias is the consequence. We have to go and look at the biology or at the underlying biology, I think. Definitely. Um, so you had mentioned a while in Michelle's lab, uh, you were working on the opioid receptors and you were seeing agonist versus inverse agonist effects depending on the system, how it was tuned. Can you elaborate a little bit more? Was it dependent on the expression of the receptor or co-expression with other uh, signaling proteins? So what, the way we sort of were rationalizing it is if you had more activity in your receptor, you would be able to see drugs behave as inverse agonists. If your system was not activated, those drugs could sort of become partial agonists. So one thing that was really sort of changing the level of the receptor was the level of receptor expression. The more you have receptors, the, the more you can see the constitutive activity. Uh, so that, that was what we were sort of rationalizing. The problem was sort of, uh, I didn't want to work with constitutively active. <laughs> So I, I wanted to stay a little bit more in the real receptors. So we didn't go to measure that. And we sort of challenged our system by de uh, desensitizing it and reducing activities through desensitization or producing, uh, uh, exposing the, uh, to inverse agonists and increasing the amount of receptors. So we, we work pharmacologically in order to change the uh, level of receptor expression and activity. And this is what we came to the conclusion that, you know, the more active, uh, that it, the more there are active receptors in the system, the more the, uh, the inverse agonism will be evident and vice versa. If you desensitize your system, something that was an inverse agonist can become a partial agonist. It was all about tuning, tuning the system. Yeah, but more than that, what I, and you know, another aha moment that, because I, I loved your question about that and I really thought about that. Uh, <laughs> when at that point, the, uh, the director of the Department of Pharmacology at the University of Montreal was Dr. André Deleon. And he had, had come up with a program where you could sort of predict or you could model 
like the level of active conformation, non-active conformation, like coupled or uncoupled active receptors. So that allowed me sort of to play a lot with my data and understand and come up with uh, that, uh, that rationalization. It was really something that was for me a changing experience because it sort of directed me into more the quantitative world and a little bit more into trying to pre predict uh, reality from the models that we sort of work in vitro that seem so unreal. Definitely. I mean, I remember um, one of his papers from the Wolefkowitz lab. That was the De Leon 1980 paper yeah. that I had went through as well. Um, what I also wanted to ask you is, so a lot of us do these, these ex experiments and these assays in hex cells. What do you think about working in hex cells and what do you think about, you know, the information that we gain about these receptors in, in this quote unquote artificial system? Uh, well, you know, it depends. I think we get very good information from those because uh, as I, you know, we were able, imagine the simplicity of a system that overexpresses the receptor, looks at how the receptor changes one conformation and change, you know, between uh, uh, two proteins, beta, uh, beta gamma and G alpha, or recruitment of beta resin to, to the receptor. You look at the simplicity and you are able to predict what has been sort of uh, reported to a dirty database like the FDA pharmacovigilance database. So if you can predict something like that with a system that simple, you have a very, very good system. We should not sort of <laughs> we really need to acknowledge the, the value of what we have. That being said, we have also to think of, about how can we make it better? And obviously, you know, like we now have tools that uh, we, we, we can sort of go and try to produce the real somatic cells that are the target for uh, on, in, in which the GPCRs are being uh, expre uh, expressed. So obviously we have to go in that sense because I think the better the model, the better it would be the prediction. But, but at the same time, we have to bear in mind that using stem cells, transforming them into somatic cells, putting uh, a, a biosensor in there in order to monitor drug it's a very complicated process. It's a very expensive process. So we really have to be able to measure the cost benefit. How much more information are we going to get from these uh, somatic cells from iPSCs as compared to what we already have with the hex cells? That is one question. We also have to keep in mind uh, we are trying to do this. So, you know, I am, I am very... <laughs> And it has to be a rational effort, I think. But another thing is we have to keep in mind that the cells that we obtain through uh, differentiation of iPSCs are not the adult cells that will be the target. So we have to remember that yes, we are getting nearer, but it's not the same. So, you know, we cannot always we will always be running for the perfect model. We always have to assume that we have a model, that we do not have reality. And that is something to bear in mind when we go into these stem cells because the, they will be a model. This is what I am saying. We have a good model and very efficient model in excels. We can sort of go better and predictive, but they will not be reality. They will still be a model. This is something that I think we need to keep in mind. And there is another thing is, so how do can we get these cells, somatic cells that we get from uh, iPSCs, they are immature. So the question is, can, how can we get information about mature cells, uh, like, what happens in the body of a patient with the mature cells that are uh, living within a pathological environment. 
And I think that, that a, a way to look at that is all that has to do with the drop seek movement, you know, like the uh, single cell phenotyping. That is something that I think uh, will be growing in, in the future. But for, for us, for the GPCR people, the, the idea of being able to look at what are the receptors and the effectors that are in the cell of interest, in the pathology of interest, that is a new Pandora box, but it's also a treasure trove. So I think that is what will be keeping me interested now, you know, for the time being. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. It's hard because a lot of people say, well, you know, we shouldn't be working in hex cells and we should be looking at receptor function in a more relevant system. But at the end of the day, as you had mentioned, it's difficult to look at a more relevant system and it's expensive. And hex cells are so convenient at the same time, but we still need to keep in mind that, you know, CRISPRing out a G protein, cells adapt, and we need to keep that in mind. What I think is like everything, you know, it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that that makes the perfect recipe. It's not one or the other, but a perfect recipe has to have in also into account, take into account the costs because, you know, not because you throw everything at your recipe that is expensive, it's going to make it good. So, yeah. Agreed, agreed. Uh, in the context of, of analgesics, how, what would the best analgesic look like? Would it be um, um, an allosteric molecule or would it be an agonist for that preferentially activates uh, some pathways then but not others? What are your thoughts I on that? Uh, of course, you know, I can tell you what everyone says that an allosteric modulator would be the best. What I would also try to, my message would be like, I would like really to understand the endogenous ligands. You know, the endogenous ligands are the endogenous uh, analgesics. So I think trying to understand what makes them so special is something that will take us maybe a little bit further. We can, like, we cannot do drugs with uh, the endogenous opiates because they, they are peptides. And, but, you know, learning what makes them so special, what type of signaling, I think that for me is where we should be looking for the answer of, uh, of a good analgesic. Like, there is also something of interest for our lab now, we are trying to move a little bit away from uh, opioids to cannabinoids because these also are analgesics. And there is a the big difference because we are trying to go to cannabinoids not as like the molecule of THC or CBD. We are really interested in the cannabinoid hypothesis like the entourage hypothesis. If you take cannabinoids as this complex pharmacological stimulus that combines many cannabinoids, terpenes, you know, can you get an analgesic response? Is the analgesic response that you get from this mixture different from or more effective than analgesic response that you get from a pure drug, which is the basis of the entourage hypothesis? This hypothesis has been sort of folklorical until now. But the question is, can we sort of use pharmacological quantitative methods in order to answer the question? Is there a benefit of combining like cannabinoids and terpenes in order to produce more analgesics? Is uh, you, like, how does this, if it's better, how does it work? What is the mechanism? Is there a losterism? Is, how is it that they work? And one thing that is complex about the cannabinoids and much different as compared to the opioids is the complexity of the stimulus and then the complexity of the targets. Because you will have the GPCRs, but you also have the TRPs, you have also the enzymes in the endogenous uh, endocannabinoid system. So I think that that is another thing that analgesia is, is a complicated thing. And the more you treat it with complicated uh, solutions, you might be sort of uh, finding better answers. You know, like 
the perfect drug for the perfect, there, nothing is clean, like for me. So this sort of complexity in cannabinoids, I think it's something that I, it's a challenge, it's an incredible challenge, intellectual, quantitative, but we want sort of to try to address the question and try to see is analgesia better with this type of drugs. And not only that, like there is always this idea opioids, THC, they are addictive drugs. So, you know, like for me, it is true that is uh, addictive drugs, but THC is more than an addictive drug. It is a drug that is taken by teenagers. This may change the plasticity of the brain for the long run. And we know very little of how it might affect cognitive functions, not only, you know, addiction is certainly, but this is the only thing that, or the, what is being taken most care of by the, the law. The law is saying you do not have to have THC because it is addictive. We really do not know what the THC, the CBD are doing to the cognitive functions. So that is something of interest also, not only analgesia, but also co- uh, effect of cannabinoids on cognitive uh, uh, functions. We have been looking at cell-specific effects of uh, cannabinoids there, but that might be something for another time. Definitely. So you had mentioned you're you're working on so many projects and you had mentioned um, in a previous conversation that you were building a tool, that an, a bioinformatics tool that you were hoping to share. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Okay. Uh, like... The idea is when we did our uh, uh, opioid um, project, we were using uh, a lot of GraphPad. And the thing with GraphPad is that you have to analyze one uh, curve at a time. So what we tried is take, there is nothing sort of new different from what is out there at this stage. It's like just automatizing so that you can press a button and get all your curves analyzed at the same time. At the same time, what we want to do, once you have analyzed your curves, can you sort of recover your parameters and be able to do sort of simple graphs that will allow you to compare parameters in a graphical way, in a quick way, you know, because now we are generating enormous amount of data And how do we systematize that data in order to make it clear? What is it that we should be focusing on? And we found that the uh, radial plots are very useful in visualizing differences and similarities. So in our first uh, step, what we are going to try to put together, like this is not ready yet. Uh, I I don't know whether you should have brought it up, but... (laughs) trying to do is just automatize the analysis and the graphical representation. Also, when we, when we were sort of analyzing the data for the, uh, the opioid, uh, mu opioid and predictive analysis, we got a lot of insight from the reviewers that, like, I don't know whether you are aware there is this sort of... Mm, conversation going on on how bias should be uh, analyzed, whether what is it, and essentially how you should consider like affinities, functional affinities, which is the way that uh, Dr. Kenakin and Dr. Christopoulos uh, use uh, the operational model. And then there is another group of scientists like Dr. Costa that they are sort of an ongun onaran, that they were sort of saying, no, do not let uh, functional affinity be free and, uh, you know, use binding affinities. So we we were caught into that discussion during the analysis of our paper, and we had a, a reviewer that was very insightful and said, you know, maybe one thing that could be done is not a free-floating KD, not a, a KA, 
not a, an actual strong KD, maybe you can do a shared KA for all the biosensors at the same time. So we are trying to put this model into place. We are sort of trying to uh, take the suggestion of one of the reviewers in the paper. We are trying to get it a little bit further. So we are trying some new ways of fitting curves uh, in order to assess bias and get information about tau that has less error than what we have now. I just don't want to get into those. Yes. <laughs> frighten people away, you know. Well, definitely. I mean, it's important to have a tool to automatize when you acquire so many dose response curves and you need to plot them one by one. Having this ability to, to automate analysis helps speed up and reduces man hour and you get more time to think about what the data means actually than having to do copy and paste uh, operations. Also what we want to try to do is to take a little bit further that so that people sort of you know sort of make our our paper on predictive analysis a little bit more user friendly and provide a tool that once you have your parameters, you can also try to see, okay, if you have something to predict, could you be able to use your parameters to predict it? But that would be a second stage, you know, like uh, the first stage is the automatization. And then is it possible that we can help people sort of give them something to do some predictive analysis? But that now is a little bit like, uh, uh, I need to get my my lab working again after COVID. <laughs> <You know? laughs> definitely, definitely. So you had mentioned in the beginning that you had different GPCR loves and you started out in Uruguay with the serotonin receptors, then moved to, to, to Canada and then you worked again on the serotonin receptors. Then in Michelle's lab, you had the beta adrenergic receptors, the delta and mu opioid receptors, then in your lab, and now you're switching, shifting to the cannabinoid receptors. Any other GPCR loves or GPCR or pro G protein uh, favorites? I remember at some point you were working uh, heavily on the cure channels. Uh, yeah, well, um, we have like as an effector for uh, GPCRs, we have looked at that. Uh, we are looking into you know like uh, cannabinoids have a lot of uh, channel effectors by themselves. So one question of interest would be to look, you know, like uh, cannabinoids uh, work on TRPs. Uh, they have effects on calcium channels. One of the questions is, do they have an effect on care directly? That would be a question of interest, but at this time we, we are just sort of thinking about it. You know, there are, we, we are still, trying to systematize cannabinoid signatures in terms of CB1, CB2, and TRPs. Okay, so what do you think, um, since you're trying to systematize and you're obviously going to acquire a lot of data, what do you think about mach using machine learning to, to accelerate drug GPCR-related drug discovery? Okay, so when uh, one of the tools that we used for looking at the opioid uh, receptor was a machine learning type of uh, clustering analysis. Uh, I think that is, we want to try, we want to continue in that sense. What we did it is we used uh, like um, this machine learning approaches in order uh, applied onto the parameters we want to go a little bit further and explore without any model, just going on the data by itself and suddenly looking at points in the space will take a lot of uh, machine learning approaches, let's say, but that is something we are, uh, we are looking into, yes. All right, thank you so much. What is your um, advice for young or junior scientists who wanna get to work on the in the field? Uh, I told you already that I don't know why you chose me because I I do not think I have a career. Like, so what I do have is I was interested in questions and I followed my questions. I was 
not building a career. I was simply following my interest. So what I would say to the young people, follow your interest because it worked for me. That, that's, I, and, but I, honestly, I think it's, it's essential because, you know, like, um, it is difficult out there. It's not an easy work. There is not that much money and you have to be competitive. So the best thing is that you like what you do and you're interested in what you do in order to get the strength, in order to go through all the hoops that you will have to go through. Great, great. So we, st we also talked about a little bit about your aha moments. Um, I you had mentioned that you really liked that question. Just to recap on the aha moments, you had said that the uh, inverse agonist and agonist responses of the opioid receptors in Michelle's lab was, depending on how the system was, was tuned, was one aha moment. Can you remind us what are the other aha moments you had? Yeah, like, as I said, like in me, for me, the aha moment was working with Dr. Delian's uh, program. That was the aha moment. It's like the ability to be able to take data, analyze it, and predict response from your model. That was the aha moment. Like for me, it was something that turned my, uh, turned something that was an artifact into a, a response, uh, a pharmacological response. For me, that was the, a life-changing moment as a scientist because it gave me the, la vivance. It gave me like the vivid uh, experience of how wonderful it is to do science in this way, quantitative, that you can sort of transform something that doesn't have value into something that has value. So this, for me, is the aha moment. Then, as I said, uh, the other aha moment, which is the inverse agonism, was that we were looking for biased ligands in uh, using uh, the mu opioid receptor as a re uh, signaling as a readout. And we looked at G-protein versus beta-restin. And we had an enormous amount of ligands that we thought they were biased. But in the end, they were simply partial agonists. So we realized at that time that we might not be having bias anywhere. So what we are looking at as something that is a beneficial response is simply that the analgesics that produce less side effects, they do so because they are partial agonists and they will also be partial in producing the analgesic response. So, you know, it was a sort of down moment in that sense but at the same time, you know, you have, uh, we were, what we were very happy about is that our analysis told us the reality. That is the reality. We were able to see it. It was sad for the bias movement, but, you know, it's something for us, it was good, but we, we were very happy about the analysis that we, that we had come up with. So, it was aha in one sense, but you know, the bias went a little bit south. And do I have any other aha moment? Um, I think that, you know, like uh, it's not an aha moment, but it's a realization with uh, the stem cell, uh, the use of stem cells for drug discovery and for GPCRs and it is, a complicated system. It, it is probably going to be a very predictive system, but we really have to be cautious about costs and uh, how we use them. And they might not be the only answer because the cells that we get are not essentially like the cells we are targeting and that we will need to complement that that is my little neighbor. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so he's getting frustrated. But we should complement the uh, the the IPSCs with drug data uh, from patients and from mature cells. And I think we will have a better picture. I don't know whether the, it became clear. It did. Thank you. So to sum up, as the young junior scientists follow the question, follow the science jump through the hoops and uh, the aha moments will come and with that will come also a better understanding of, of biology and, and GPCR biology.
yeah and do your life you know <laughs> exactly <laughs> and everything falls into place when you're old <laughs> i don't know <laughs> so Nathila, if you have job openings uh, in your lab where where can people find you you know usually people contact me from reading the papers i have not sort of or from um, the, I don't know, like what word, word of mouth. Yeah. So honestly, I do not put up uh, advertising, but I will read every single people that send me emails. I always respond. So, you know, I can, I can that's the way I recruit the, the people. Now we have to get back on our feet. So advertising, we are not advertising for that, but I, I consider every single uh, application that I get. So that, that's the way my lab works. Yeah. That's fantastic. So on the page where you'll find um, when the, when, where the podcast transcript will be, there will be a page where people will see your website and they can uh, contact you directly. Yeah. By email, so, that is the best. Yes, and they will also have access to your publication so they can read the papers and then send you an email and then see what, what you think. Okay, great. Fantastic. One last question before I let you go. If we weren't in, in the situation that we are in now and you had to recommend a top two or three conferences for people to go to, what would those be? Uh, certainly the GPCR retreat. Like uh, I, every student in my lab goes there whether they have results or not, because I think this is like essential for them. They get the very good science at very good level, sort of interacting directly with the people that produce this science. So that would be my number first choice. And the Gordon conferences for me are always uh, great. And then the ones in California remind me, <laughs> I'm sorry, um, um, the other side. Uh, well, what, what are the ones? That, in Italy, in Luca? No, um, yeah, that's it. Yeah. So those are the ones that, but essentially the GPCR, and I also recommend people, I go to neuroscience when I can because a big and a small conference is all what that it takes. At the same time, I do not, you know, we have to become much more conscious about traveling, not only because of the COVID, but because of what is happening with uh, uh, climate change. And I think that the COVID experience tells us that we can learn a lot from whatever is on site and uh, all the incredible lectures and conferences that are uh, available through the web and the the initiatives of doing uh, presentations through Zoom uh, for conferences is something that will be more and more present and we should take advantage of that and not go and fly to conferences all over the place. Agreed. Thank you so much, Graciela. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this Dr. GPCR podcast episode throwback. I'd like to thank Dr. Graciela Pinero for being an early adopter and joining me on the podcast as our first female scientist guest. Thank you also to our team members, Attila Forrest and Ines Pinero. Become a beta tester today of the brand new Dr. GPCR ecosystem by visiting us at ecosystem.drgpcr.com. That is ecosystem.drgpcr.com. Please subscribe to the Dr. GPCR newsletter Find us on YouTube, and if you like our podcast, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts today. You can also leave us a testimonial at drgpcr.com testimonials. Another great way to support us is to share your favorite Dr. GPCR program with your network and colleagues. If you have any questions, suggestions, you can always email us at hello at drgpcr.com. Until next time, stay safe.